welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talk to Brian Leung Kai Ping, who is a graduate student at the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington. Brian is also known as a student activist who removed his mask during the storming of the Hong Kong Legislative Council Complex in July 2019. In this episode, Brian tells us about political mobilization, urban geography, and what role it played during the student protests in Hong Kong. You can find more information about Brian in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Alan Lust. We hope you enjoyed the show. One experience that got me into thinking about space, the urban geography and political mobilization is really in 2014 and the Umbrella Movement, right? As the student bodies and you know university students, we kind of occupy the Harcourt Road, which is the financial center. You know, the really the heart of the whole you know financial activities, right, uh, in Central's area. And then you know, once people kind of gather around Harcourt Road, you know, it differentiates into different zones of mobilization, right. At the core, you have the central decision-making bodies, right, the student leaders. You know, the NGOs, they are kind of communicating among themselves and making decisions, right? And then the crowd would kind of be very naturally spread out, right? Uh, you know, and differentiated into different zones, right? And, the, you know, the farther away you are from the core decision-making bodies or the region, right? The closer you are to stay violent, right? Those okay. are the people who are trying to defend them, who are, you know, sitting at the core peacefully or making decisions on a daily basis, right? They are the ones who are most proximate to like stay violence. They are the ones who defend against police who are trying to kind of clear the road, right? So uh, there is a very interesting psychological disparity with, between those two groups, right? For example, those who are at the front line, as they call it, they are much more prone to resort to violence. They will okay. say, why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we escalating? The police are storming us every day, right? And you guys, like you know, the leaders are sitting at the core, you know, peacefully saying that you know we should put our tools down, which is just sit there, which is just sit there and waiting to be arrested, right? You are naive, right? And on the contrary, the leaders would have very different psychological perception about the whole situation, right? Mm-hmm. They would say, you know. Those like should not resort to violence because you know it will kind of ruin our images, our reputation, reputation internationally, right? So it really got me into thinking about even if within the same protest you have so much spatial variation, right? That lead to, for example, different experience and exposure to state violence, right? And it lead to very different perception about you know is the decision making democratic, right? Should we obey the leader? Should we resort to different protest tactic, right? So I mean that kind of, and and you kind of like put it into the context of Hong Kong where everything is so crowded, you know, the space is so limited, and the in- human interaction really intensified. People are arguing with one another all the time. People are running, you know, back and forth from one region to another region to relay information. You know, they are all kind of using different sorts of communicative apps. You know, they are communicating all the time, right? 
So to me, it's fascinating how you know the spatial setting, urban geography, you know, really intensify or sometimes create division within a protest. Can you maybe give us a, a good sense of you know kind of your own position within this? Where were you? And um, you right. know, for those who don't know, you're you're yeah. very most well known, if you will, for the one who unmasked during the Lejko uprising. Right. But but to also just give us a sense of when you're thinking about the front line versus right. the center. Your right. own position. I think when, for example, in 2014, I was among you know the student bodies, right? You know, uh, the whole protest was initiated by some student who stormed into a civic square that is uh, proclaimed to be government property, right? And they're trying to reclaim you know uh, that that space, and they got you know it really triggered the police into kind of uh, resting and clearing that civic square, right? Mm -hmm. And then the student tried to rescue their bodies by surrounding that civic square. So it basically sparked off the whole umbrella movement where people coming to the central area and trying to rescue and kind of mobilize and, you know, uh, to, to support those students who are being trapped by the police, right? So, you know, I witnessed all kinds of uh, new emergence of tactics and phenomena, right? For, for example, uh, the umbrella, what, what, why, why do we got the name of umbrella movement, right? It's when we are trying to, you know, when the police are coming and we are trying to safeguard our folks and they are trying to spray tear gases, right? And we're like, we have nothing to defend ourselves, right? And we look into the, you know, there is a lot of uh, uh, people who are watching from, you know, other, uh, other, you know, maybe building, maybe uh, some sort of rooftop, maybe some sort of like corridor, right? And they are saying, you know, I got umbrella, let, let me help you. And then they will throw umbrella from the skies. Okay. And then, you know, oh, from balconies, uh, yeah, from balconies, yeah. etc. Oh, I got umbrella, and then we try to use it to defend the police, right? So I, I witnessed all the creative emergence of new tactics, and mm -hmm. you know, just very uh, practical Solutions, survival yeah. solution. You know, you grab whatever you have, right? You grab water bottle to kind of help wash people's eyes from you know the tear gas, right? You you, can, you see all the new, uh, emergence of new tactics, right? So I've been very, uh, and I have a lot of direct confrontation and uh, with the police at the front line, right? So I know this was in 2014. This is yeah. in 2000, uh, yeah. 2014, right? So I think uh, I'm much more sympathetic towards those people who are facing police brutality at a very close distance, right? Mm -hmm. I think their psychology is much more different than other people who might be much more peaceful or immune from police brutality, right? I think one thing is like. Uh, I remember vividly when there was a night uh, we were trying to trying to defend the front line, and we got really tired at three a.m. right, and we sleep right. Everybody sleep. You know, you, you just pick anywhere on the street, and you just have a backpack as your pillow, and then you slept right. And there is someone who accidentally dropped a water bottle that is empty, so it got. It's like there is a huge sound making out of it, right? And everybody was feeling like it's a grenade. Everybody feel like it was the police chasing after us, right? So everybody, everybody become frenetic in terms right. of running for survival, right? And I think that really got me thinking into they're so vulnerable, they're mm -hmm. very fragile, and their psychology are in some sort of like survival mode, right? I think it really changes how I perceive you know, the protesters who might later on become much more radical, right? Mm -hmm. I think their psychology are very different from those who might be immune from state brutality, right? Because they basically they sort of experience much more of a, almost an existential threat, exactly, right? And exactly. they feel that that sense of fear much more. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So it really translates into the later on the split between the protesters who are much more radical and demand escalation, right? 
from those core central leaders who say we should remain peaceful, right? And there are a lot of miscommunication, unfortunately, and a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about why people on the front line are so urgent and, as you put it, so existentially nervous and, you know. At the 2014 period, to, to what extent was that already an organized movement or right. to what extent was it kind of emerging out of this right. this particular crisis? I think the recent history of democratization and the level of organization uh, in Hong Kong movements, I think, could be illustrated by my, my youth and my high school, my undergraduate experience, right? Uh, when I grew up, like, uh, I, w- I was born in 1994, so uh, I grew up in an era where it was... Know, already after the return of sovereignty to China, right? But I think people really aspire democracy, right? Mm-hmm. They were really thinking that democracy is around the corner. It's going to come very soon, right? So when, when I was young, like 10 uh, or you know, 12, politics, like, politics are actually very exciting. People aspire towards becoming politician, running for a party, you know, running for office, you know, we're going to get democracy and our leader very soon, right? But uh, I think the tide changed really uh, drastically when I approach you know, high school and undergraduate year where we feel like China actually didn't have the intention to fulfill the promises in basic law and the Sino-British Joint Declaration where you know, eventually there will be democracy, right? So that's why there is a recent wave of young uh, activist-led you know, movements, right? We start from 2007 and eight, where we have a series of uh, what, what they call local conservative movement, right? That is about historical uh, monument, uh, preserving historical monument, right? And I think the most famous one come from Joshua Wong in 2012, where he, at the age of 15, led a movement against the patriotic education imposed by Beijing, right? I think 2012, really, like, great work by Joshua, really, uh, you know, signaled a, a new era of politics where young people are, you know, at the age of 15, 16, they become the leader of a movement that involves 500,000 people yeah. easily, or even a million people, right? And so at that era, you feel like if you're young people, especially if you're student leaders at university, right? We have a very interesting tradition where, you know, social activists are trained in university. Okay. If they are very social-minded, they will go to run for student union in university. And, you know, the, the, the election and, you know, all the politics in university are very serious, right? People have to dress really nice, they have to come up with platform, they have to uh, go through uh, suffrage processes, right? And we often joke about even if you run for student union leader, you will get more vote than the chief executive in Hong Kong government. <laughs> you will have easily 2,000 votes in your university, but right. you know, the chief executive is only gets 700 votes, right? So we often you know, make it you know, as a ridicule, right. you know, we are more democratic than you, right? So, and 2014 is really a concerted effort in terms of the student union body and the NGOs and the civil society forces and the pan-democracy forces into a Hong Kong-wide movement against, you know, Chinese imposition that, no, we're going to pre-screen candidate for you in terms of our chief executive election, right? So people got really upset about that, right? They are saying that, you know, we have been waiting for two decades, three decades. Right. And you are saying that your version of democracy is about you screening, screening the candidate for us. Mm-hmm. And we endorse it using vote, right? Doesn't make sense. So people really come together in 2014 uh, in a very concerted effort way, you know, basically uh, led to the umbrella movement. right? So I think I would say uh, in the early part of this decade, you see much more 
organization led by young figures, led by student unions, with the help of uh, old civil society voices, NGO networks, pan-democracy, political party, right? That was the you know, characteristic of the first half of the era. Okay. But the second half of their era, if I may continue, it yeah. might be too long, you know, is that the, the first half, the, the tactics we employ in the first half didn't work. I think the government has been using a tactics of delay, dragging us down, creating internal divisions, you know, wait, simply waiting us out, right? I think, you know, Beijing or CCP are very conscious of the fact that, you know, I think the second half of their era after Umbrella Movement, uh, there has been a lot of internal division and especially, uh, uh, as I put it, you know, between the leaders and the frontline protesters, right? So there have been a lot of accusation about organization being not democratic enough, right? About leaders being not democratic enough, not representative enough, right? So I think people have come to realize that, you know, a hierarchical structure of organizing a protest have virtue, but also is vice, right? right. The virtue being, you know, They've been more efficient in terms of making decisions. There will be credible leader to kind of bargain with the government, right? But being, you know, facing a, a communist party that is very robust and strong and patient and very cunning in terms of waiting us out, using propaganda to create internal division, I think people have come to realize maybe we have to switch to another form of organization, right? And they envision some sort of much more decentralized, leaderless, if you will, uh, forms of protest where, you know, there is no single leader who can claim all the legitimacy and put it into bargaining chip and kind of trade with the government, right? Because the government simply don't want to trade with you, right? I think people really learn that, you know, when governments say we want dialogue, they will invite student leader and come to have a meeting and then basically dismiss all the claim and can kind of use their channel, the energy, into their propaganda machine, right? We have show our sincerity, etc. Right. So I think people have come to realize we might need a much more radically flexible, radically decentralized form of organization, right? So in 2009, this year, you've seen that kind of embodiment of the idea of being decentralized, being much more citizen initiated. Everybody got a role. Everybody got you know, some chip on his or her shoulder. So I think you know it has to be a feedback between you know our past experience with different forms of organization and, you know, our interaction with the government, knowing that it might not have a very direct response or it might not have this have the sincerity to really bargain with you, right? I was going to say, just to interrupt you really quickly, yeah. but it seems to me that, that it does go hand in hand with an idea that the space for negotiation has closed or is right. closing and, or, and, and what rather you sort of really need kind of response, right? And I mean yeah. that that if you want to have a negotiation, then having a strong leader who can be the bargain, bargaining point and yeah. make a negotiation and then make an agreement stick is what you want, right? right? If you don't think that negotiation is the way to go, then you actually sort of benefit from having a structure that doesn't allow a single person to negotiate and make agreements on behalf of the group. Right, right, right. I think, exactly. I think people's mentality has come to a point uh, where they realize, you know, the government might be very, actually very reluctant to make any concession publicly on the bargaining table, right? So I think they have used some sort of like brickmanship strategy where they say, I, we tie our hand, we're not going to elect our leader, right? You either catch everybody and throw us all into jail, or you have to kind of 
concede to our demands, right? So I think people right. have that realization of pushing government to the verge of, you know, you have to make a concede to our concession and basically leave no step for, as you put it, like very over uh, bargaining. And so if we, if we move into this very most recent, recent period, um, you know, can you give us a sense of how that has then manifests itself in terms of the various ways in which kind of, you know, just in terms of kind of the literal manifestations of protest that right. we've seen across Hong Kong? The whole movement was sparked by a controversy around uh, extradition law that was proposed by Hong Kong uh, that basically legally allowed Hong Kong, uh, you know, fugitive to be extradited back to Chinese legal system, mm-hmm. which uh, attract a lot of distrust from the people, right? Because the Chinese government has not been democratic or abide by the rule of law. And it really sparked a series of uh, protests, right? You got the, in June 9th, you got almost a million people going to the street. Right. And June 12th, another a very uh, bloody and violent clash between the police and the protester and the police basically shot several rounds of rubber bullet, right? And it really triggers a very strong sentiment and discontent from the population, right? So in June 16, where it was the day when I come back to Hong Kong right, from, from my study in Seattle, right? You got two million people very peacefully marching on the street, right? You know, the whole uh, movement basically start from that series of mobilization and very violent response from the police, right? And then uh, from that on, it kind of differentiated into different episodes of protest, right? We, in July 1st, we, uh, myself included, a group of protesters choose to storm into the legislative council to protest again the undemocratic nature of the system, right? And you got other episodes where, you know, there is a direct confrontation between protesters and some sort of like trial member that we, now, you know, people uh, believe to be hired by the government, right? And, you know, you see there's a new tactic where, of the government where they outsource violence to gangs and trial member. They even, I think there is a source of saying that, you know, they basically hire people across the border and, you know, they would hire gangs from mainland and transport them to Hong Kong. And once they commit the violence, they could be, you know, they could transport commute back to China overnight, right? So you see a a growing sophistication of very subtle state violence, right? So you got all different episodes of uh, confrontation between government and the protester, right? So uh, the protester come to demand that, you know, there should be very forward investigation of police brutality and, you know, the withdrawal of the extradition bill. That is a demand that we achieved. But I think eventually uh, people also demand very structural reform uh, that is long-lasting. It's not some sort of like you know, one-off policy where we can be brought off, right? Government always talk about, you know, it's the housing issue that prompt people to go to the street, right? I think people have come to realize, right, it's police brutality, and behind that, it's really about a government that is undemocratic, right? So we've got, throughout the past few months, it's all different episodes of direct or indirect confrontation between the police and the protester. And I just want to make sure before we move on to thinking about yeah. these different episodes, this this sort of decentralization mm. of the movement, mm. is that in some ways kind of a response and, and a result of this process? Right. Or you would, you would argue that it came before the most recent um, yeah. sets of confrontations? I think there is a, some sort of like push and pull factors, right? Uh, one, it was a consequence of 
a lot of prominent young leader being thrown into jail after Umbrella Movement. So I got a personal friend who was a party leader who was trying to run for Legislative Council election, whose name is Edward Leung, and he was thrown into jail for six years. Right? So he exemplifies a lot of young protesters who are very committed to political career and social movement, but are being punished very severely mm-hmm. before 2019. So I would say very paradoxically, when people, when government throw all the best and brightest young leader into jail, and there is no credible leader who can come and say, hey, yes, I'm going to organize the next right. movement. People kind of say, yeah, it's upon us, right? It's on, it's on our shoulder to do something, right? In order to, to continue their will, right? To kind of honor their sacrifices, right? So I think is there is an unintended consequence where after Umbrella Movement, the government become really heavy-handed in terms of persecuting a, a group of young leaders, you know, traditional uh, pan-democratic leaders, right? I think it backfire in terms of people saying that okay, you you can throw our leader into jail, but now we're here. We're gonna we're here to do it, right? So I think that's a very interesting unintended consequences. And I think the second one, as we talk about it, is really about learning from the past experience of unfruitful negotiation with the government and knowing that usually dialogue means a bait into their propaganda machine and some sort of delay tactics, right? And I think they have been very conscious about. Diversify, like you know, not putting uh, the eggs in one basket, yeah. right? Everybody have some eggs in their own basket. So I think there's some sort of push and pull and structural and contingent factor playing into it. And you know, you mentioned the legislative council, um, Legco sort of protest, right? Mm. And um, and that's obviously one place where things took place, right? Mm. And, and and it makes a lot of sense, right? It's it's mm. it's symbolic in yeah. what it stands for, and it's the center of power. We also saw protests that we talked about before at Chinese University of Hong Kong. We've seen them at uh, Polytechnic. We've yeah. seen them, you know, in different parts of the city. Right. And so one of the things I thought would be useful and interesting to think about is kind of why the protests take place where they do Mm. and the ways in which you know kind of the geography and the urban space makes a difference again uh, hong kong has been a very interesting place in terms of being extremely landscape and it's very concentrated in terms of human interaction and interaction with the city landscape right with buildings with the geography right so i think people actually has a debate in this movement, right? Should we be extremely formless and adopt some sort of like Bruce Lee mentality of be water, right? Just do wildcats kind of strides and do not occupy a building in terms of, you know, we, we have some sort of traditional imagination of occupying a civic square, like uh, maybe in Arab Spring, right? Like, right, you know, sort of Cairo, you know, Tahrir exactly. Square. You occupy a very yeah. significant space and you defend it and you kind of make your demand in that space, right? And people have been debating about the marriage. Should we do that or not, right? Some people say, you know, we should be be water. We should be formless. We should, uh, you know, strike and go, right? And then people say, you know, there is a, for example, in the Legislative Council, it's so symbolic. We should occupy that. It's kind of, uh, you know, people, once they occupy it, or the other population can come and surround the building, and then we can kind of, really make our statement very clear uh, and hurt to, uh, no, make it hurt. Right? So I think there's a actually very interesting debate. But on the other hand, I think to me, when, you know, a certain very eventful moment, right? I think, for example, the Legislative Council 
Ifang, the Chinese University Ifang, right? People really come to kind of seize the symbolic symbol symbolism behind uh, a building, right, such as Legislative Council that they perceive to be undemocratic for the past two decades. The symbolism of Chinese University being the intellectual, you know, uh, castle and you know the uh, the stronghold of intellectual freedom, right? So that kind of geography where as a isolated uh, but very symbolic uh, monument or building or landscape really attract people to kind of occupy it, defend it, and to uh, to make their you know values you know explicit, right? We are trying to defend institution of democracy embodied by this building. We are trying to defend the institution of intellectual freedom embodied by this university, right? But uh, it's also interesting to see the debate behind it, right? People would right. you know, should we do it? Should we be extremely formless, you know? And, uh, and so, I mean, the, the debate behind the yeah. Legislative Council, I mean, how did that, how did that unfold? If you can give us a better sense of how, right. what the, not just what the sort of decision or the kind of the two sides right. were, but, you know, what were the arguments behind in that right, were, right. that went out, yeah. Right, I think, uh, you know, that, on that day, actually, there are a lot of debate around as it justified to go into the legislative council, right? First, there is no uh, meeting going on, right? So, you know, your if your intention is to obstruct certain meeting, right? Uh, it doesn't it doesn't make sense because there is no uh, meeting going on, right? But you know, from a symbolic point of view, you know, you can occupy it on the date of the return of sovereignty of Hong of Hong Kong sovereignty back to China because it was supposed to. To be accompanied by democracy, right? But it didn't come. So on that day, it's so symbolic. We, we, we are justified enough to, you know, storm it, right? And also, people debate about, oh, you know, what's next? Like, if you occupy the legislative council, you'll be besieged by the police very uh, soon, right? And then, what's the point? You're gonna, you know, you're gonna, just draw them in. Yeah, so yeah, you just draw them in. You know, you're gonna lose, right? You're gonna be, you know, out outnumbered by the police eventually, right? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of what's the objective and whatnot, right? So, but if actually a group of young protesters who are so desperate enough to kind of break into the legislative chamber, right? And when I saw that, you know, my, 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 my sense is like, if the movement was not publicly justified and narrated in a way that, you know, uh, oh, actually people see a point behind our action, mm -hmm. right? I think it would create another split between you know, the radical cam and the peaceful cam, right? So to me, uh, that, that day, I think uh, we have to step up to reconcile the differences and right. the contradiction, right? I think the move, uh, social movement is interesting in, in terms of, there are so many contradictions every day, every minute, every corner, right? It's not some solo, though. there is a theory behind social movement that you can mastermind <laughs> everything, you know, it's not Lenin or, you know, you could come up with a plan, a five-year five plan or whatnot, right? It's, something, it's not something you can, uh, control and a minister and you know it's really about you know a lot of there is a lot of contentious point a lot of uh, contradiction a lot of tension right and I think someone have to step up to reconcile them right so I, I talk it like to myself and say, I, I say you know uh, we have to come up with a manifesto a statement right we have to read it out in front of the camera to let the public outside uh, know what we are doing right so I think, uh, so my, my story is only part, you know, just a tiny part of the whole movement, right? There are a lot of internal contradictions you know, throughout the movement. And it's really about the humanism, you know, human faces, 
human courage, human you know sacrifices, who kind of reconcile the internal contradiction day on a daily basis, right? And what I think is important too about the statement and the sort of the manifesto is that it reminds us of the importance of essentially kind of the controlling the story or the yeah. narration, right? Yeah. Because, you know, otherwise it can be seen almost as a bunch of hoodlums going yeah, into right. the right? Absolutely. So the, the, the importance of actually, you know, having having and, and trying to put forth yeah. a story because, of course, the other side also puts forth the story, right? right? And, you know, and so people need to... Um, need to sort of think through that as well. You were mentioning before we we started this uh, the kind of the ways in which COHK, mm. you know, as not only the Chinese University of, of Hong Kong is not only an important institution and mm. sort of one of the leading mm. sort of universities in in Hong Kong, um, but just kind of the the physical space right. that it occupies right. and what it means. Can you, right. you know, yeah. sort of discuss that a little bit? Right. Uh, CUHK is situated in the New Territories, and I think it is one of the largest campus in Hong Kong. Right? It's a beautiful campus that sits on the you know some sort of like mountain terrains, and it was kind of isolated from the central district of Hong Kong. Right? It was a very tranquil, quiet area that people loved the campus. It was very uh, no, very conducive to intellectual thinking, etc. Right? So there is some sort of like purity in terms of the popular imagination of CUHK, right? It's about the law surviving everything. It's about... It's great thoughts. Exactly. It's <laughs> about sitting on the grass and, you know, discussing readings, right? So I think CUHK, again, in, in the popular imagination has a sense of intellectual purity and a, a very strong sense of symbolism, right? And I think people have, throughout history, I think there is some sort of norms where certain institutions should be immune from public power unless it's extreme circumstances, right? We think about church, and uh, we think about universities, we think about other kind of like, you know, social institutions that have symbolic meaning and kind of, you know, uh, should be immune from the reach of the state, unless there is extra, extreme circumstances, right? So I think COJ occupied that kind of beacon of liberty, intellectual thought, and, you know, freedom, right? So I think once uh, uh, the police is trying to go into the campus and trying to arrest the students who are uh, involved in protests, right? The alumni, the students, really came to CUHA and to kind of rescue their intellectual motherland, right? There is, there is a very strong sense of loyalty and commitment towards their home university, right? And given especially the background of how much student activism is tied to their university. Mm -hmm. uh, no, there is a very strong pride of the history of act student activism in certain university, right? So there is a parallel between, let's say, the free speech movement in Berkeley, where when you go to right. Berkeley, people say like talk about the history all day long. And I think there is some sort of resemblance in COJ or even like my university, Hong Kong U, right? People are proud of the fact that there is a very strong history of student activism, right? So people really just to boast the history and the geography and the public imagination of a beacon of freedom and intellectual you know, autonomy together. Right? So it makes CUHA so symbolic and so, in some sense, as epic. Right? People really resonate yeah. with the photo where people, the students are trying to defend using mattress against tear gases, right? That kind of imbalance of force. Uh, but yet the tremendous but it's mobilizing. Yeah. yeah, it's very mobilizing, very moving. Yeah. 
Now, I'd like to understand a little bit more. Both both the Lechkum and CHK are, are good examples of where sort of the symbolism yeah. is very, very important, right? Polytechnic has, had, was an interesting mm. kind of episode or, mm. or siege to me because there was a part, when, when I look at it from an outside perspective, that almost seemed like, okay, that it would be a very bad place to try to like just from a from a you know kind of a, a geographic perspective yeah. you know it, sort of, it's, it felt like it was very cut off and very vulnerable in, right, right. in a sense sure. so I'm, I'm curious to know whether or not that was those kinds of considerations came into play or how that came about and right. and in to what extent are these considerations of right. vulnerability of actual kind of the nature of space taken into account right I, I think that's the exact point of contention behind a lot of protesters, right? Uh, Polytechnic University was situated at the, the centers of different traffic roads. Uh, it was uh, in between the Hong Kong Island and the Kowloon, right? So it's basically the central node of a lot of traffic system, and different geographic part of Hong Kong, right? So in terms of logistically, it was so hard to defend because, you know, the government and the police could easily, you know, reinforce, you know, they could send in police, they could reinforce, they could send in materials very easily, right? So it's a very hard place to defend in terms of how how much spot you have to set up, you right. know, maybe barricade, maybe you have to put men and women there, right? So I think people debate about, hey, why, why do we have to defend a castle that is basically undefendable, right? Uh, so hard, let's give it up, right? But I think, again, there is some sort of like, romanticism coming from the student who are from polytechnic right they feel like there is my intellectual home we have to defend mm -hmm. it and uh, we have to do it right no matter what right you know the CUHA folks show us great courage it's so moving and we want to replicate that epic poem in our home university right so I think there is a debate between the realism of you know the physical constraint and you know the just strategically a very hard point to defend right and the romanticism of this you know and the symbolism coming from you know it being an intellectual home to many people actually uh, protesters are constantly debating about not only the symbolism right but also the strategic difficulties in terms of that right so i think it makes the polytechnic university a battle that is still very debatable i think people still come it's very hard for them to come into term with is it a good fight is it not a good fight and you know when i i look at this of course my my work had been a lot in the middle east and yeah. so i followed the arab uprisings very closely and um and david patel was one of the one of the also you know kind of scholars who observed those uprisings yeah. and made the argument that where there were squares and you'd mentioned yes, squares yes, earlier right. as well where there were squares then uprisings were much more likely to be successful and to galvanize and gain um, a momentum versus you know urban spaces that didn't allow those kinds of mobilization and focal point so i'm just curious i mean you mentioned earlier that there's some debate over the extent to try to find a place and defend it versus not but but if you look at the urban landscape of of hong kong are there even you know sort of are there obvious focal points or obvious squares that hold those that type of a, a meaning. Right. I think uh, it's funny. In 2014, there is almost a tale of two cities in Hong Kong, right? Uh, by that, I mean there's a tale of two central regions where people occupy and gather 
uh, in Umbrella Movement, right? One, it was in the Hong Kong Island, mm-hmm. in the central area that I talk about, Harcourt Road. And the other one is, is in Mong Kok, which is in Kowloon. It's a much more grassroot area that is surrounded by, you know, low-income family, shopping area, uh, you know, hawkers, you know, triad member or whatnot, okay. right? So there is a tale of two zones where the the central area are perceived to be much more elitist in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, the student leaders were there, the NGOs were there, the public figures were there, you know, the people who were much more peaceful were there, right? And whereas in Montcourt, the laymen were there, okay. you know, the uh, people who were grassroots were there, the people who were traditionally not considered as activists, right, who doesn't have a, a resume on uh, how much movement he or she had led were there, right? And, you know, the triad member who are actually very sympathetic to students were there, right? And, uh, you know, so there is a very interesting parallel between, you know, in Hong Kong there are several songs, but there is also some sort of like class structure mm-hmm. and imaginations, right? You know, the people in the Hong Kong island would say, you know, Hong Kong is so dangerous because, you know, the government might, the, the triad member might belong to the government, right? They might be hired by the government to disrupt our movement, right? But the, you know, the Hong Kong folks would say, you know, they are our friends, right? Even they come from very uh, interesting background, or background might not be familiar to most people. They are still a group. Uh, they are still a part of the movement, right? So there is an interesting parallel between actually, in Hong Kong, especially when Hong Kong, you know, everything is, you know, the interaction scale up, uh, everything is so concentrated. You see, even in a protest, there is some sort of like split in terms of that is based on some sort of like class and. Mm-hmm. You know, elitism, right? Uh, how much you are involved in leadership or whatnot, right? So, so yeah, I think it's a very interesting urban geography. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, when you're talking <clears throat> about this kind of lower class area, <clears throat> was it also, was it an area where there was a kind of an open space or a place, yes, place yeah. where people could, could right, right. sort of mobilize that had right, the right. same... Right. Same. I think there, there is an open space where it was usually for the hawkers and, okay. you know, uh, people who sells, you know, kind of market space. Yeah, the, some sort of like market space, and you know, the intersection. Uh, it was like some sort of like row intersection, and people occupied it and kind of gather around it. So, but there is no. Uh, I think the government have very consciously not to build some sort of civic square. That okay. is, that there's no Tiananmen essentially. I think yes, I think so. They cut off. They they use bridges. They use uh main road to kind of cut off and you know basically slice our city into different segments that is very hard for people to easily walk to another area right so i think hong kong geography has been yeah, very sliced up into different little segments and there is no one single square that people occupy so that's why we have to occupy roads right. we, we usually have to go to the road and uh, it, it was it was kind of liberating, you know. The first time we the protester walk into a main row, right? It's like that, and you know we stop the traffic, we occupy the street, right? And you feel like it's liberating because you have never once in your life walk into a street, right? You know we are so obedient that you know pedestrian row is pedestrian row, right? right. You know, the traffic row is traffic row, right? But it's interesting yeah. that although also challenging, right? Yeah. Because again, if you think about the the ways in which people can be sort of galvanized to support or not yeah. support the movement, right? Yeah. Then, you know, disruptions is yeah. one of those ways in which people can turn against the movement because right. they they may agree with it in many ways, but then they say, but we can't get anything done That's or we right. can't. Um, and so it becomes very, very challenging. Yeah.
thank you so much. This is incredibly helpful and uh, great to talk to you. Thank you.